Hello everyone, I'm Gaurav Chopra. I'm the founder and CEO of IndiaLens.com and it's a pleasure to be on the show today. way to understand credit is to look at it not as a source of money or capital but rather as a time travel machine. Credit makes it possible to access your future earnings today by paying a small fee. In a developed economy, credit is a lubricant that greases the growth engine of the economy, empowering businesses and consumers to time travel their income. In fact, in the US, the value of total credit is more than double the GDP. In India, this is only half of the GDP. This shows the massive opportunity to build credit businesses in India. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dutt is talking with Gaurav Chopra, the founder of the fintech startup India Lends. India Lends brings in the efficiencies in the lending process by aggregating multiple lenders on one platform so that each customer can find a lender that meets their needs. And they have raised more than $30 million so far to help them in their mission. Gaurav is a lending industry veteran, having worked with global lending companies. And in this conversation, he talks about the seven-year-long journey of building India Lends, surviving the COVID pandemic and the SaaS opportunities they are chasing in the lending space. Listen on. And if you like such insightful conversations with disruptive startup founders, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. Actually, I grew up in Delhi. I belong to a middle-class family where my father is a chartered accountant. My mother runs a small boutique for women. So they were, in a way, they were both like entrepreneurs. Correct. Did my schooling and college in Delhi. School was at Springdale's, Dholakwa. And uh, post that, I went to St. Stephen's College. I uh, did an undergraduation in mathematics. So that was essentially the stepping stone into a career in finance. I started off my career with the usual internships that people do. The first internship was working with Tata AIG. They had just started operations in India. Did that for two, three months. Essentially, it was a good understanding of, you know, the insurance product. Uh, didn't really, you know, as a 18 year old, didn't really understand what these products were. So ended up learning that. To mention the sales part, it was a good way to... Also, nurture your selling skills. It's not easy to go and sell a product. So that was good. Especially insurance. Yes. Second year, I did an internship with AB and Andro. That was in the investment bank. So they had a nice little outfit based out of Connaught Place. And that time I was essentially helping the investment banking mergers and acquisitions team. They were looking at a transaction that involved two quick service restaurants merging together. But there was a lot of family pressure to study more and hence I decided to move to London. I did my master's degree from the London School of Economics and this was straight after college. Six months, April, I think we graduated and September I was in London. And the next nine years I was in London actually. So between 2004 and 2013, I was in London. First one year was my master's degree. And then I ended up joining a bank, Capital One Bank, in analytics. So this was campus recruitment, my first proper job. And little did I know that I, you know, spent seven years working for the same company. And that was essentially the start of my career in consumer finance. Ended up doing almost everything that has to do with understanding and building consumer finance products, credit cards, personal loans, savings. One question, so Capital One is like an NBFC, right? Or is it like a traditional bank which takes deposits also? So in, in the Indian context, Capital One, when I joined, was an NBFC. So this was again started in the late 80s, early 90s by two gentlemen in the US. And when I joined, it was not doing deposits. But within, I think, two, three years of me being there, I'm not taking the credit for it. But within the first decade of 2000, Capital One went on a huge uh, acquisition spree. And uh, today it is in the top five banks in the US. In fact, if you go to New York, the way you see HDFC branches in Delhi, you will see Capital One branches over there. Right? And uh, that time it was a good global expansion spree as well. Capital One was in the US, then Canada, Spain, Italy, France, the UK. 
we were also looking at expansion into India. And that was the first time I actually understood the Indian consumer finance data, how big the eligible population is, how underpenetrated consumer finance is, how the credit bureaus are not really present uh, compared to you know, what I was used to looking at in the West. So that was the first eye-opener that uh, India is the next big opportunity. And so this was the time I started thinking about moving back to India. And again, when I spoke to my family about it, they were like, you know, you are still not properly educated. So I said, what are you talking about? I've done my undergrad, I've done my master's. From LSE, one of the top 10 institutes in the world. Yeah. So then they're like, no, you must do an MBA as well. So then I thought, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity. You never know, you know, if you get it again or not. I ended up doing an MBA from the London Business School. And uh, that worked out very well. It was in London. It was literally a 15-minute walk from my house. And uh, Capital One was very supportive. In fact, they sponsored the MBA for me. This would have been a, like an executive program that you could work and study together. Correct. So this was a executive program, which was essentially classes used to be on a Friday and Saturday. And then every few months there would be a full block week. And it was, I would say, the best experience I've had. Nowadays, a lot of people talk about or doing MBAs remotely or there are books which talk about a 90-minute MBA or a three-month MBA. There is no experience like an MBA, especially after you've worked for so many years. And from a good college yeah, and the networks you have, I tell my friends and family that I will do another MBA maybe 10 years from now. It is just the networks you build, the learnings that you have, the kind of people that came and spoke at that time, the guest lectures. It is, you can't replicate that in the uh, online world. So that, again, was a great experience. I ended up choosing the international module, which meant that uh, besides London, there were courses I took up in uh, Columbia, in New York in HKU in Hong Kong, in Dubai and Argentina. It, it, was, it, it also gave a good global perspective, both from a developing world standpoint or going into the, for example, Argentina, and as well as meeting other people and understanding more businesses, you know, in the US, Middle East and Asia. And that also was a good, I would say, confidence booster, which meant that you could now leave a well-paying job, or I would say a well-settled life as well. And moving back and having the courage to take that risk of, you know, coming back into the unorganized world. I then moved back to India. Yeah, you, like the move back to India, you, like, were you clear that you were going to do business or was it India that attracted you and then you thought I will figure out I will search for a job or I will explore business. Yeah, so I always wanted to do business and at LBF that became very obvious for me. The courses I was taking were on entrepreneurship. There was a new product development course I did. There was a course in venture capital, private equity. So I chose my elective modules in a manner that would also prepare me to take the plunge and be aware of what things to look at. And to be honest, at Capital One as well, I was responsible for launching a few new products. So that entailed, right, from hiring people to doing the legal contracts, getting the product in the right place, having the marketing collateral. So those were things that were exciting. The only unknown was India. And that was both from a personal as well as from a professional standpoint. Most of my adulthood, so you know, 21 onwards, was spent in London. And then moving back into India, so you change jobs, you move countries, you start something new. So all those things were, you know, unknowns. So I gave myself a three-year window. I said that in three years' time, if my venture does not succeed, I will move back either into the corporate sector in India or move back to London. So the, I had kept those two options and luckily with working in finance, working with Capital One, having the right, I would say, credentials from an educational standpoint, that confidence was there that you will find a job. Uh, don't worry about that part. And luckily at that point, there were no liabilities in terms of mortgages or a family to support kids. It was a relatively, I wouldn't say easy, but an easier decision to take. So I moved back to India. This was after quitting Capital One. I actually spent six months traveling. I thought that this is one opportunity that I shouldn't let go. So uh, spent six months traveling and then came back to India. That is where I think the roller coaster started. I ended up doing a few things which were essentially, I would say, the flavors of the season. So my first venture was actually developing mobile apps, brick and mortar stores. Right? So we are talking about 2013. They weren't really topifies of the world. People were still talking about moving to mobile phones. Data was cheap, but not as cheap as it is today. Went on and developing a product that saw good uh, traction to begin with. I remember there were customers who were willing to pay uh, two, two and a half lakh rupees a month for an app. 
and this was built as a SaaS product. As a new business, you always quickly do the math that if I get my first thousand customers, this is going to be hugely profitable. But like most things, I realized that two things were missing. One was the passion for the product. That is where, you know, I realized that in the time you're not passionate about what you do. And in my case, that was finance. You will never be able to wake up at six in the morning or work seven days continuously. And the second part was that there has to be a differentiator. In, in this particular case, there were cheaper clones that came in that were offering so same services for one-fifth the price. The cost was probably one-tenth. Realized that was a good start to actually understand what I want and what I don't want to do. And so the next step should be that let's come back into what I'm passionate about, which is finance. And the way I took was actually joining a startup. I thought that I understand consumer finance very well, but that ha- that is more to do with how it works in the West. India is a very different ballgame. At that point, you could ask me anything about the US market, UK market. They were my fingertips. In India, trying to figure out how is your 1.2 billion population split, how many are urban, how many are rural, what is the income split. Once you are in the job, these are things that you, you, know, you can relate to. It's not that you can just read about it and start a business on that. So I joined the startup. It was a P2P lending startup, India's first one uh, called iLend. I worked there for nine months. So it was a two-member core team, which were coming from a tech and an ops background. I was the only one coming from a credit background. So it was a good match. Ended up launching their first product, building there. So you were doing the credit underwriting for the startup, like responsible for that? I was looking at all the lending operations, so credit underwriting, selecting the customers, how to reject them, what kind of product features to have, what interest rates to have, how to set up collections. So that was an amazing learning ground for me. That was, I ended up understanding the Indian credit bureaus, the collection agencies, the collection practices, what kind of, what services were banks providing, what were they not providing. So it was a great way to learn the industry. And that is when I had to make a call that do I continue doing this? So that's where I said that, okay, there is a huge gap that I can understand, which is that most borrowers who uh, need loans are not getting it. And the ones that don't require are the ones that are being bombarded by the, the lenders to take loans. And, and we had solved this problem beautifully in the West by setting up marketplaces similar to your Amazons of the world, but in this case for lending, where a consumer would come in, he'll tell us a bit about himself. And based on that, we'll be able to figure out which is the best lending product for them. And this lending product would, unfortunately, most uh, most of us, if you ask, can you name 10 financial institutions? So the first three or four, we'll be able to name because we bank with them. But then even going to the fifth or sixth would be difficult. And understanding that India has over a few thousand NBFCs, which are balance sheets of more than 500 crores, a hundred odd banks is it, something that people don't know, right? So there could be a lender who is literally uh, 10 minutes away from you willing to give you a loan, but because you haven't heard of him or you can't uh, reach out to him, you're not able to access him. So that is where we came in. Essentially, you're saying the problem you identified was information asymmetry, which could be solved through an aggregation platform, like aggregating borrowers on one side and aggregating lenders on one side and connecting them. And earning some commission on every transaction. That was what you thought as the business model? So there were three things that came to mind. One was from a lender standpoint, because end of the day, that is how we make money. Just to summarize, India Lend is a platform where we attract borrowers and we have the country's best lenders and we make them meet. And the meeting is not just passing on a lender or a borrower lay. It is doing a lot in between, whether it be KYC, whether it be underwriting, support, whether it be figuring out what's the best product for them, providing them a good user experience, providing them with the borrowers more information about their finances. Right? So those are the value adds. But from a revenue standpoint, our revenue comes from our lenders. Right? We help distribution for our lenders. That's the, that's the primary goal. And that was a huge challenge in the lending market. It still remains. Right? And the reason for that is that most lenders are very segment or product focused. Right? So you'll have a big bank who would say that I want the cream of the cream. I want salaried people who are working for the top 100 companies who are earning at least 60,000 rupees a month. And I will provide them with the lowest interest rate. Right? Similarly, you will have a smaller NBFC who would say that I'm happy to lend to people who are earning 15,000 a month, but I will only give them 20,000 rupees and I will charge them 25%. Now, both these extremes require customers to come to them. And unfortunately, when they both try to market, they get segments which may not actually overlap with their own customers. 
right? The NBFC in this case will go and market for their customer. They might get somebody working for a Google who's never going to take a loan, but they've spent marketing, right? Similarly, the bank would attract all sorts of people who may not be eligible, right? So we felt that if we have all these lenders on our platform, we can market jointly on behalf of them. And the Google profile can go to a bank who's just started their career, is not earning enough, does not have a credit history, could go to an NBFC or a challenger bank, right? So that was uh, so that was the problem from a distribution standpoint we were solving. Got it. So essentially, like you're pulling in the marketing budgets of all of these and making it more efficient because now, irrespective of who comes in, there will be some product for it. Whereas if a lender was doing individual marketing, then half of those leads would be irrelevant. But those irrelevant leads are relevant for somebody else. So that way it's more efficient. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So it is, so we actually nailed it, right? It is combining the marketing budgets, but actually not having those budgets. And that is where I think the whole venture capital comes into play that you need to prove that. So now we have lenders who are willing to give us those budgets. But when we began, it was that you had to spend from our own pocket to prove this out, which luckily essentially like when you began, it would have been performance-based payout. If you are giving them a like a qualified lead, then you would get paid else you would not like something like that, I'm guessing. Yeah, so that was one distribution problem. And the second one was from a customer standpoint, which is a borrower essentially requires three things. He wants the lowest interest rate. He wants the best or optimal ticket size, the loan amount. And the third is he wants a process which is optimal in terms of not giving too much information or, or you know getting the loan as quickly as possible. So the whole process part of it. And that is where our claim was that we will provide you the best possible loan basis your profile. So at Indian Ends, we've given loans as low as 10,000 rupees. We've given unsecured personal loans as high as 45 lakh rupees. They start at as low as 9.9%. They can go 30s or in case of a credit card in the 40s as well. So from that standpoint, the borrower is looking for choice. We were also pleasantly surprised that when we started, we thought we'll only attract higher risk profile. But we were getting a decent and we continue to get a decent amount of people who any bank would be willing to lend, right? But they're coming to us for two reasons. One is again, choice. How do you know that your bank is offering you the best product? And the second, which wasn't that obvious, was that was actually want secrecy when it comes to taking loan products. They will not call up their personal manager or relationship manager and tell them that give me a 5 lakh rupee loan. They'll call up and say, open this new account for me or help me with my trading services. But there's still a sense of pride on the opposite. That's taboo, right? Taking up taking a personal loan. So that was that was one thing we realized that besides choice, customers also want to tell the whole world that they're looking for a loan. And the third thing was, and this was from the Western experience, that we felt that data was not properly used for underwriting. I could ask you for your bank statements, but if I don't need your bank statement, why should I take it? And if I'm taking your bank statements, the idea should be to give you a lower interest rate or a higher ticket size. So the term for that is risk-based pricing, which is you understand the customer's risk and then basis that you provide him a loan offer, uh, which is customized, right? And what we felt was, and which is today also the case, if you look at a credit card, for example, now whether it's an American Express credit card or it's a new bank's credit card, all of them have the same interest rate of 3.5% a month or 42% an annum. Right? Now, that should not be the case. Somebody who has a good credit history, who's getting a good salary in place, should have a lower interest rate. Somebody who's, let's say, missed some payment before should have a higher interest rate, so on and so forth. Right? So this is where we felt that by having a platform in place where we get access to a lot of consumers, as well as look at the lending practices of all our lenders, we could improve some of these things. And that is where some of the services we provide to our lenders, whether it be analytics or it be recommending what kind of risk segments to go after or what kind of products to come with is something that they find valuable. Right? So that was, those were the three things that we were after and we continue to do that right now. So essentially like to recap, like choice, data privacy, confidentiality, personalization, the, these were like the, the broad benefits for the borrowers that you were offering and for lenders, ROI-driven marketing, basically. You would not take anything upfront. They would pay for performance. So it was a better way to do marketing than just blindly spending and getting a lot of irrelevant leads. Yes, but over the last three, four years, what has happened is that we've also built a plug-and-play technology module for lenders 
where they can come and they don't have to build things for themselves, right? So let's say bank statement scraping or DC modules or analytics on the data side. So all of these, the big banks and NBFCs have all of this in-house. But let's say you're a new NBFC starting out. You don't want to spend time, energy, money on reinventing the wheel when a platform like ours can offer you a plug-and-play solution, right? Within the spirit of the regulation, whatever we can provide to our lenders, we do that for a fee or for a business commitment. So that's the value they see. And lastly, it is giving insights and analytics to our lenders so that they can optimize the products further, either from a risk policy standpoint or from the segments that they're operating in or from what new additions to make to products. So that those are the value adds that come into play in the platform. Tell me your go-to-market journey. You must have got a tech team together to build an app because you wanted this digital first, right? That was the only way it would make sense. Tell me that go-to-market from that zero to one. So tech was the backbone. And I was, I always used to tell people that when we say fintech, finance is the core and tech is the enabler as opposed to the other way. And what I mean by that is that technology is super important. But more important is the financial element of it, the risk, the how you get your customers, how you make sure that the right matching is happening, risk is, risk policies are well defined. Right. So with that in mind, we had a core finance team in place. And that is something which, you know, being coming from that field, it's easier to attract that talent. And I was looking for a CTO co-founder to join us. And I spent, I would say, four to six months trying to, you know, get the right person. And when we were not able to, we said that, okay, let's go with the same mantra that answers he and tech will follow. We hired a company to build our first tech module for us. And then very soon, actually, Acqui hired that company itself, right? Where we said that was a six, it was a six member team that had just started their tech development. We were among the first few clients and they enjoyed working with us. They were not able to clients at that time. So we said, listen, the good synergy. Why don't you come in full-time work with us? So that worked out well. And it's been seven years now. And our CTO was the same guy we hired from there. And then it was bootstrapped for the first three, four months. Put in savings in, got the first few hundred customers. Started off with three lenders that we put on. We got one lender, which was offering loans to super prime customers, you know, Bajaj. Uh, we got one lender who was looking at Prime uh, segment, which was Fullerton. And then we got a prime subprime lender, Capital First, which is now IDFC First. And uh, that's how we started the journey. So onboarded three lenders, got our MVP website in place and uh, started marketing to customers. So yeah, I still remember it was the first day and I was not sure what will happen. And I think within the first one hour of launching our website in a small Google campaign, we did our first loan of 5 lakh rupees. That was essentially the validation we were looking for, that somebody would come in and they would want and the loan went through. And I would say the rest is history, right? We started scaling up, attracted some capital and just started building the product from there onwards. What was the risk management process here? Did you give like a first loss default guarantee or did you do the underwriting or did you pass on the information to the bank and then they did the underwriting and decide to approve or reject? Yeah, so to begin, so we have not actually done first loss default guarantees, right? And the reason for that is very clear that we are not going after segments that nobody is willing to underwrite, right? Our approach is very simple that you come in, Look at the segments that we have. A big bank is happy to come and pick up certain segments. A smaller NBFC is happy to come and pick up some segments. And that has worked well. Right. And uh, luckily, so like you're saying this first loss default guarantee or FLTG as the insiders call it. This is, it's a tool for fintechs who are tapping a new segment. Like the, that's when they use it. Yes. It's to tap a segment that. Why would a bank want to part with its revenues by asking for an FLDG if they are sure about the segment? A bank would say that, listen, I know this segment very well, or the NBFC would say, I know this segment very well. We'll help you to get the loan. Their apprehension comes because it's an unknown segment. And then the bank says, okay, fine. As long as you are protecting the downside on this, I'm willing to share some upside with you, thereby reducing my margins. But it means my downside is protected. So that's how the whole FLDG concept came into place. And this is actually to an extent similar to the whole BLPL subvention model, right? Where Apple or the Samsung would say that, please, today a customer comes in, he can't afford my product. But if you provide him a loan, I will pass on some marketing cost to you, which you can then disguise as a 0% product or a low interest rate product, right? And you add an FLDG on top of it, so it's a you know, cherry on the cake. So what was your process? So our process was simple, right? We stuck to our core that people are looking for choice. So our first one year was, let's 
understand where the banks are lending and where they are not lending. Right. So simply get consumers to come to us, enable them to share their information in a safe, secure, digital manner with the lenders, and then figure out where the lenders are working, where they're not working. So this was our first goal where it worked well. Here we were, we were making very low commissions because it was actually just a lead gen model as opposed to any value add for the lenders. And then after a year, when we understood what segments people are lending at, what are the policies that lenders are looking at, we felt that the only way for us to grow this would be if we are able to have the same information that the bank has access to, which is essentially the credit report of the customer and the bank statement of the customer. And if you're able to get this, not only will we be able to provide the best experience from a borrower, it does not need to go to three lenders on our platform, he can get the best one. But at the same time, we'll be able to offer it the best product as well, which is his risk profile and can negotiate on behalf of the borrower as well. So right now, what was the first year was happening was that the entire negotiation was happening between the lender and the borrower. Now what happens is that we know exactly what the profile is. We will tell our lenders and listen for this segment. Please offer the best possible interest rate, lower the processing fee, because this is what the risk of the customer tells us, right? So this was the second, I would say, iteration where we started getting access to all this information. We were the first company to go to a credit bureau and tell them that, why don't you start your uh, consumer credit report product and give it to us at a lower price than what you're offering to the customers and we will make it free for the customers. Right? So we offered the whole free credit report which is now become a commodity. We started this as early as 2016, right? And uh, this was the first in India where uh, borrowers were happy because they were able to see their credit files. The credit bureaus were happy because they were able to get scale. And we were happy because we were able to understand the consumer and the borrower better. And our lenders became happy as well because now what they were getting was essentially something where they only have to take a decision that should we proceed or should we change the product offering as opposed to rejecting a lot of them because you know we earlier did not have this information. So that is where the whole credit report journey started. And then we added on more deals on top of that. So this credit report would help in two ways. One, it was a marketing spend to get more people to sign up on the website, like free credit report would be a pull. And then second, you would make probably a relationship with a bank where they could give you a blanket approval for a certain cohort, like people with this much salary, this credit report are approved by default. So, so that because of which you needed the credit report to get that blanket approval from the bank for that cohort. That's where it helped. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so for the various lenders, you would have mapped cohorts with each lender, like for this lender, this cohort will get this interest rate. For this lender, this cohort will get this interest rate. And therefore, when someone of that cohort came in, you were able to match him to the best, like the lender giving the lowest interest rate for him. Yes. And when you have, so we had the advantage of starting in 2015 and having a lot of consumers who took loans from us and who got rejected as well. And now when we had this credit report information plus banking information, we were able to go to our banks and challenge some of the decisions of rejecting customers, as well as telling them that, listen, if you are offering 14% and there is another player who's offering 12%, you are the one who's losing out, right? So how can we optimize this better? We can make it more digital so that cost also comes down, so on and so forth, right? So it eventually, it meant more business for lenders. It meant a better product for consumers. And in between, we put down our business model, which becomes indispensable then from either sides. I guess for a consumer, the other advantage is that his credit report, I believe if you go to many different lenders, each lender asking for the credit report from the bureau, then that will reflect negatively. Like it will impact your score negatively. Now that would not happen because only you are getting the report on behalf of all lenders. This is a very, uh, I think, critical and important part that, uh, you know, borrowers and consumers have to understand. See, the logic is that when a lender pulls out your credit report, he's pulling it out because you have applied for a loan and he's evaluating you for a loan. Now, if after doing so, he gives you a loan, great. But if he does not give you the loan, the credit bureau thinks that the bank has rejected the loan and there is something wrong with this profile. And hence the credit score falls. And, and if this happens and if a borrower applies to, let's say, 10 places and let's say all 10 places offered him a loan, but he only takes from one, the credit 
Bureau of the other lenders think that he's applied in 10 places, 9 have rejected him. It's called a credit inquiry. And the more number of inquiry, the computer thinks that the borrower is desperate, he's applying to so many places, and hence there is something wrong. Yeah, there's a negative impact on your score. There's a negative impact. Now, what we did was, right, we did not only did we say that we'll pull out your credit report once, we went a step further and said that actually the credit report which we are providing you is the one that you have requested not from the lender but from the credit bureau. It is like me as a borrower going to the credit bureau and saying that I want my credit report, I want to see it. You can do this every single day. You know, for the rest of your life, your credit report score is not going to change because there is no inquiry over there. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. So this is the product that we came out and said that you can actually see your credit report on a monthly basis throughout your life and it is not going to impact your score. On the contrary... If you do this, it will tell you what your score is. It will tell you if there have been any fraudulent transactions, if somebody is inquiring on your behalf, if you made your credit card payment and it does not reflect, you will be the first one to know about it. So that was the value add to the customer, which is not only be aware of your score, but keep a tab on your identity theft, keep a tab on any fraudulent transactions, any missed payments. We give you EMI alerts on top of that. When is your payment due? And then the information in the two reports that the bank pulled and the one the customer has pulled is the same. So basis that, we can now say that you don't need to go to 10 different banks and those 10 different banks will pull your credit report. Just go to one and you, your credit report will still be pulled by that bank, but it's only one as opposed to multiple. So when somebody is taking or applying for a loan through India Lens, does the uh, lender still do a credit inquiry or they just go by the report that you give them? No, they do a credit inquiry and we also encourage that just to be on the safer side, right? Because let's say we customers come to us today and he's applied to four or five places tomorrow. The lender should know before doing that final check. So it's always encouraged. But sometimes the lender is like, okay, if this report is fair, why should we incur an extra cost? Most lenders pull out another report. The cost is uh, compared to the risk they're taking. It's, it's manipulative. But instead of 10 inquiries, there'll be only one inquiry because you will, you're able to match him and avoid that frustration of applying somewhere and getting rejected. Yeah, we started off as a comparison website, which many of our competitors are, and it gradually evolved and has become a recommendation agent. So now there is no point in showing a standard chartered personal loan of 20 lakh rupees at 10% to somebody who is never going to get approved for it, right? So somebody, so the user journey is now somebody comes in, we take his permission, show him his credit report, not just pull it ourselves, show it to him. And this is your credit report. Now, basis this, here is the best offer for you. And there's probably no better offer than this. And then give him a choice between those two or three lenders. That here is one lender, here the interest rate is such, the processing fee is so much, free payment or pre-closure penalties are here, and you choose. And here is our recommendation. Got it, got it, got it. So you were talking of that those value-add services like EMI alerts and telling you about your credit. So is that like a paid product for consumers? We debated about making it paid. Then we thought it is probably best not to do that. Let's keep it free for till date. We've kept all our consumer services free of cost and we try to optimize how we make money from our lending partners. And tell me the journey in terms of numbers. So you started with three lenders in the first year. How much, how many loans did you disburse? How, what was it like in the second year? So I, top of my mind, one to year seven will be very difficult to come to the exact numbers. But I would say that from three lenders, we now have, I think, 65 or 67 lenders. Right. And so this is me both adding lenders as well as saying no to a few lenders, so on and so forth. Right. Now, we've luckily, we have reached a place where any new lender or anybody who's getting into digital lending, traditional BFCs, traditional banks will automatically reach out to us. At times, we have to say no to them if we believe that either their processes are too manual or they won't be able to scale up the way we want them to. Right. Even and then again, from a loan volume perspective, Overall, I think we've done around 2,500 crores of personal loans. We've done maybe 800, 900,000 credit cards. And in year one, this number was probably you know, three crores of loans and no credit cards in year one. 
So it's been growing. It was very challenging during COVID. COVID was probably one of those years where uh, first four or five months were those times where, you know, it was actually no business activity. Lenders had stopped lending. But overall, now things are much better. Not much better. They are actually better than pre-COVID. Higher revenues, lower costs, higher profits. All those are things that have, uh, that have come to play. Okay, okay, okay. Do you also do collections? You would not need to do collections, right? Because you are just like a loan origination platform. You're not taking on, uh, you're not doing any underwriting. So You are right. But then we also thought that this is a value add that some of the newer NBFCs are looking for, right? That we want of A to Z solution. That you come, you originate, you also help in collection support. So we've recently, I would say six months back, experimented with it. Got a collection scheme in place that we are doing some pilots on. And uh, we'll see how we uh, get along with that. But the idea is to essentially provide value adds to our lending partners where we continue to be a, not just a source of distribution, but throughout the life cycle of the customer, we are there to help them. Right? And this is how we feel that we'll also be able to differentiate and maintain our importance especially when a lot of other companies, e-commerce companies, etc., are having access to probably the same consumers that are there, right? Your food delivery companies are having the same consumers, your travel aggregators have the same consumers. So there was a huge question mark on does customer acquisition even make sense for somebody like us? But then our answer to that, which is being proven, is that somebody who's coming on to a food delivery company is not really looking for a loan from there. And even if they are, if we are able to provide 10 other value adds, then end of the day, the lender is going to get more comfortable in what we provide as opposed to being there. So that that's where we built that out. And we are partnering with other consumer companies as well who want to monetize, let's say, their user bases. Right? So with one of India's biggest consumer mobile companies, we ended up building our entire or replicating a platform on their app. So a customer could come and take a loan from there and the entire backend was ours. So they benefited from and we did revenue share with them. Right? So they're benefiting from monetizing the user base without actually getting into the nitty-gritty and the complexities of you know, managing multiple lenders, KYCs, product changes, uh, regulatory challenges, ISO issues and all of that. Got it. Got it. Uh, plug and play, uh, the, how someone could integrate a payment gateway, they could integrate a, like a lending product, a white-labeled lending product, I'm guessing. Exactly. Got it. Amazing. And how do you get bank statements? You were talking of a bank statement scraper. How does that work? The company that provided, right? The one that is in the news recently is Perfios. So what Perfios does is that it allows the customer. So think of it as a net banking transaction where instead of making a payment, the command is that please download my bank statement. So you are logging into your bank, you are downloading the bank statement and that bank statement is becoming available in the digital format. And the benefit is that there is zero fraud over there. And the processing time is immediate as opposed to an underrated looking at your bank statements. So this is, I think, where technology is changing by the day. This one particular one has been there for quite some time now. It's a good way to de-risk yourself from fraud as well as getting efficiency from a digital process. So banks don't like have an API call supported where you can just have an API call with some authorization to get the data, the statement that doesn't happen. See what these other companies are doing, they are aggregators of the same now, right? So instead of me going and integrating with 100 different banks, they have already done the hard work and hence they are, you know, valued at that, that level. So banks have those APIs. Some have APIs, some are doing it different ways. And what has been your revenue journey? What are you estimating this year to end at in terms of your, that, that 2 to 6% earning See, our, what we have done this year, right, which is a big surprise that came to all of us was that we actually delivered profits this year as well, which is the year is still 15 days to go. But we've become profitable from our, from this quarter onwards. So next year, we'll deliver a full profit. And you know, this is at the back of having a pretty bad 2020 where it was mainly cost and no revenue. So it was a loss-making entity now getting profits. From a revenue standpoint, the idea is that Hopefully, we'll cross the 100 crore mark next year. And uh, that is what we are uh, running for. Amazing. And uh, this year, what are you expecting to cross? This year would probably be around one third of that. Okay. Amazing. 3x growth you're planning next year. Huh? How will that happen? Have you seen 3x growth in the past also? Or do you have a strategy? We've seen it. See, the mantra is not about growth. It is about sustainable growth. Right? We are in an industry where, I'll give you an example of one one particular month in before COVID, when we were able to attract 8 lakh new users who were looking for lending products. So demand is not an issue. 
at the same time supply with the 65 67 lenders we have include the country's biggest banks nbfcs fintechs p2p lenders right so anybody who is relevant in the lending ecosystem today is a partner right so from that standpoint the supply is also huge the problem is that like i said we have to invest in getting the demand in setting up the processes and unfortunately what has happened in the last 4 5 years is starting from demonetization to ilfs crisis to your covid related stress credit cycle fears there is we are dependent on our lenders because that's how we make money so we don't want to go and plan for nx growth in good months it will sustain but if the lending activity becomes reduced that's where the losses start coming in and losses are not because of credit losses but because the costs are not in the system right so we are we are still at low margin and high volume business and uh, and for that to sustainably grow i mean there is no reason why we can't do 6x but 3x we get a comfort that at least we'll be in the green when we do it so what is your cost break up how much is spent on which head in our business it is a good uh, i would say at a very high level a 20 20 20 split or a 25 25 25 split between technology uh, marketing and other human resources and the last 25 is like your overhead your margin rather profit before tax yeah your, your overhead your any kind of one off activities your data security efforts all of those things come into play is this market of lending aggregation is this like a winner take all market and based on your experience globally do you find this to be that kind of a market you would typically have two large players like food delivery or e-commerce or so why is lending not the same purely from aggregation space See, aggregation space. To be honest, there could be just two players or three players. I don't think it's going to be one player leading it. The second, now, even from a food delivery or a taxi service standpoint, you are right that two players are more than enough. But at the same time, the government comes tomorrow and says that from a competition standpoint, we need three players or four players. It will automatically happen, right? What they did for UPI, that, that regulation for UPI, that no players can have more than I think. 25% market share something like that yeah correct from that standpoint i think see from a consumer standpoint we will obviously look at i have a choice between the two taxi companies and the two e-commerce companies but at the same time being a deal seeker i would when it comes to e-commerce it is i'll still do a quick check on the other one and that whole choice is then not just a choice on an aggregator it is a choice between aggregators also how many times have we gone on to a make my trip and then gone directly to the website of the airline and then to a clear trip and then said okay one is offering more discounts and this is offering the last seat was not available on this one it's available on the other so that that uh, from a consumer standpoint that makes sense who are the uh, other dominant players in this aggregation space people who are like directly doing what you are doing so we are paisa bazaar now uh, there would be number one ahead of us again good business backed by the whole policy bazaar broke been in business for a longer time had more access to capital done a good job so yeah they are also based in gurgaon we have good relationships with them bank bazaar lending card are these also in the same space sir lending card is an nbfc their focus is on self employed so lending card is a point A bank bazaar is in a similar space. Their business model is more towards credit cards than personal loans. Our business model is more skewed towards personal loans than credit cards. Got it. Tell me about some of the customer acquisition strategies that you adopt. Like you said, that the supply of lenders is not a constraint for you. It is the borrower side which is the constraint. So, what are some of those innovative things you have done to grow that? One of us we discussed about the actually constraint. It, it's not going to yeah. It's not even the borrower side, right? There is enough and more demand for our products. It is what I meant was at that point that it has to be sustainable. We need to have the right match, right? I can't have so many borrowers and not having lending activity, which is uh, not in the lender's hand also, right? If there is a great crunch tomorrow, there's a lockdown tomorrow, lenders will not lend. We have those problems. Right? but to your exact question how do we attract borrowers so there are range of techniques right one is directly for the products anybody who is looking for a loan will be be present where they are looking for it whether it be social media or it be so similarly credit report is a good acquisition channel provide them a free credit report credit analysis a bank statement analysis similarly there are ways to reach out to them through other 
methods, SMS, email, and then this whole partnership, which I think is a, it's embedded finance where you embed your systems into people who have huge user bases. And then you have give that option to a consumer that if he's looking for a loan, he could just get it from that very platform. So it's a combination of these things. What we've not done so far is on the ATL or above the line marketing road, big brand campaigns, getting in like our competitional got all film stars and cricketers coming and selling their products. We still believe that direct ROI on each marketing dollar is the right way. And we stuck to that till now. Now that is one uh, opportunity if we really want to scale up to go that route. Uh, we'll do it when the economics makes sense. Correct. Okay. And how much have you done so far? Initially, you told me you bootstrapped in 2015 when you launched the MVP product and with three uh, lenders. Tell me about the funding journey from there. I think overall we've done more than 25 million dollars in fundraise, and uh, this was start. It's been typically each round is similar or higher than the previous one started off with a very small infusion of two crore rupees then did a one million round a five million round or ten million round so the first round was in 2015 this was three months after we started this was where we got a dsg consumer partner which is one of the biggest consumer funds in india along with some very well reputed angel investors Parik being one of them, Mr. Gautam Dada Krishnan being one of them. That that was our first fundraise. This was after seven, eight months, we raised a million dollars from the same group. And then we got American Express to come and invest in us in 2016. And then we got, alongside that, uh, them, came some another Indian fund, Advantage uh, Partners. And uh, that in 2000, that was a $5 million round. And then we got a $10 million round where a European fund ACP came in 2018. And then we did another round of eight, eight and a half, nine million in, uh, during the COVID period from this, from our same investors. Now we are self-sufficient. There is money in the bank. We are generating profits. So we'll see when we need the next fusion. I'm guessing next infusion would be when you want to spend on that brand investing in ATL and that's where you would look to raise next. Like when you're confident that it makes sense to do that. Correct. Either either that and or, you know, if we're expanding into more products. Right. So right now our focus is 100% on unsecured consumer loans. If we decide to go into the secured side or if we decide to go into the business side, that's where uh, it will come in. Okay. So w what's on your roadmap? Do you have prioritization list that these products we would look at first? See, we are, we are very confident that the segment that we've chosen, which is unsecured consumer loans, which is both credit cards as well as personal loans, are the ones where there is biggest demand supply gap. There are enough margins. And because of these two reasons, right, we believe that there is no point in going after anything else. And these are growing segments. For demand supply gap means that you'll always have demand. A good margins would mean along with the demand supply gap, that there will be enough supply as well or more and more people wanting to enter into the space. So here, uh, the uh, product roadmap is more focused on, again, more engagement from a borrower standpoint, putting in more tools that make their journey simpler, at the same time, adding value add to our lenders. What is your advice to aspiring founders around fundraise? As somebody from outside, it seems to be that big hurdle to cross to grow a business. And like we spoke about islands and how that fundraise was probably a reason for them to not sustain. Do you have any learnings you'd like to share? Yeah. So I think in my view, it is very simple that firstly, think why you need the funds, right? Is this business something which will attract VC funding, which is can it generate 20 to 30 times more in the next five years for them? If so, get more than you need. If you need, if you think you need X over the next two years, probably get 1.5 X. And then I think the most important part is to get the right set of VCs or investors. You want people who will back you when things are not great. Everybody is available to back you when things are going fine. Get people who understand your business, who understand you. There is a good, you get good vibes from the guys you meet uh, because uh, things will go back, right? There is, I don't think there's any business who's only seen one fly. And for that reason, you need people who can support you. And lastly, a fundraise is like a loan. It's not something to be celebrated or celebrate because you've achieved it. But I somehow just find it very crazy when people associate founders' wealth by the amount of funds his company has raised. If I take a loan of five crores today, I can't say that my net worth is five crores. It's actually a liability. And what is your team size today? So we are about 375 people. 
Wow. What is the split like? How many in your tech team? How many in operations? Yeah. So on the tech side, we have around 45 people. Product would be another 10. There's a risk and analytics team of about 11, 12. There's a marketing team of five. Six, maybe. There's a HR team of five. Then we have our sales and operations teams, which are the majority. And we are the people who are the, the spokespeople in between the borrower and the lender, assisting borrowers with their stuff or looking at making sure that the whole process goes through. And then other business functions, finance and business development, compliance, legal, secretarial. Do you have advice on scaling up your team? Like you told me the first scale up was through that acquihire of six, seven people, the software vendor. From there to the year 300. Yeah, I think there is no right or wrong answer here. It is that your core team that you have, the ones that are managing other people, the ones that are in the managerial position or senior management, you need to make sure you get them right. And it is not about, it's not a number thing and I need to hire 10 people in 10 days. It's about, I need to hire the right people. And that means that please go all out in getting references and actually spending to get the right people, right? A lot of people think that, oh, I won't spend money in trying to hire people, I won't spend, I will not pay 5% extra to a headhunter. In the grand scheme of things, paying 5, 7, 10% extra is not going to hurt if you're able to find the right person. So my last question. So looking at five years in the future, what would be the best case scenario for India Lens and what would be the worst case scenario for India Lens? And I know no one likes to think of the worst case scenario, but as entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur, surely you would have some some of those fears in your mind that what if this happens? So can you talk about both, like best case and worst case five years down the line? Yeah, see, the best case scenario is that anybody who is thinking of getting a loan or a card thinks of us, right? That I let me first check on India Lens, right? Even if I'm sitting in my bank and my bank is offering me the best possible loan I can think of, the thought should come that let me check on India Lens that is this the best or is there something better? And what would be your worst case scenario? <laughs> see, worst case is you don't exist, right? You are irrelevant for either your uh, lenders as well as for your borrowers. And uh, see, I have the view that I'm very patient when it comes to letting a business show its true worth. But at the same time, if your business is not growing, it is telling you something. Right? You can spend one, two, three, four, five years and try to make it fine. But I've seen enough and more entrepreneurs who spend, you know, 20 years, 30 years, when actually the business is telling them that this is either they are not the right people for that business, or the business is not the right one to be in. And that brings us to the end of this amazing conversation. At this point of time, I'd like to make a request. I want to know what you think about the show and how we can improve it. Do you have suggestions? Uh, do you want to discuss your startup ideas? Uh, is there any way in which we can add more value to you as a listener? Uh, I love reading your emails and suggestions. Please write to me at ad at the podium.in. That's ad at the T H E podium P O D I U M dot in.